0: to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato.
1: And I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato.
0: The hot summer days are here, and that means it's time to hit the beach. But since you're listening to this podcast, we know you're the kind of person who makes sure the book bag is full before you go looking for towels and sunblock. And being that kind of person, you know there's nothing worse than being stuck on the beach with a bad book. But fear not, we have you covered. Today, Jim Goldgeier, professor of international relations and former dean of the School of International Service at American University and a visiting senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, joins us to help you stuff your book bag with the books you should be reading. Jim, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Okay, before we jump into the beach reading, though, Jim, we need to ask you our surprise question of the day. And that is, uh, tell us about the book. The person, the course in college, uh, the experience that led you to a career in foreign affairs
2: so this is an easy one for me uh, I freshman year, I went off to college to be pre med uh, I was thinking I was going to be a doctor uh, and in the fall of my freshman year, I was looking for another course, and somebody said to me, "Oh, you should take this course by this guy, David Kaiser. This was at Harvard uh, way back when uh, diplomatic history, European diplomatic history from seventeen forty to eighteen seventy and uh, I, I was just enthralled by this guy. He used to walk back and forth across the, you know, front of the room and talk about all these crazy uh, characters, you know, Maria Theresa and Frederick the Great, and you know, all the way up to Bismarck. And uh, I just, uh, I just decided, oh my gosh, I'm, this is what I want to do. And I uh, <laughs> told my parents, "Hey, guess what? I think I'm not going to do pre med. I'm thinking of majoring in history." My mom was a high school history teacher. She's like, "Well, I wanted you to take more history, but I didn't want you to major in it." And then, uh, and then. Uh, you know, it was Harvard, so this guy didn't get tenure. And uh, I was so angry at the history department. And that's how I ended up being a government major, because I thought, well, what's close to history? Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't have to do their major because I'm so angry. And um, anyway, the best thing is several years ago, uh, somebody had sent me an email that he was on and said, hey, isn't this the guy that you're always talking about, change your life? And so I so I had his email. So I sent him an email and I said, "Hey, you know, I just want to you know, you changed my life, and uh, you know, if you're ever in DC, would love to take you out to dinner." And uh, he sent me a long email back uh, about all the trials and tribulations that he had in that period. Uh, And then last summer, he sent me an email. He's doing some kind of book putting together about sort of his experience as a teacher and was getting one of testimonials from students from different parts of his career. And he said, actually, the only person I've been in touch with from that particular part of my career. So can you write something? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I would love to, you you know. So so at least I was able to give back a little bit. But, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a life changing experience. History's
0: loss is government's gain that's a great story. That's actually not too far off from my own story I I similarly fell under the spell of a a great storyteller in in college and then dumped all my previous thoughts So that's I love it. I love it. fantastic (laughs) All right, let's get right to it then um now, you know, as we put this podcast together, we uh, acknowledge to ourselves that putting together a summer reading list isn't exactly a novel, novel concept. Uh, and I often, um, although I always read them, I find a lot of summer reading lists a little bit dry and uninspired. Um, long lists of books just give me flashbacks to grad school, you know. Um, so we're going to update, uh, I think, the concept a little bit. I've asked Jim and hard to provide uh, me with a uh, Book choices in five different categories. Um, now, we're also going to expand beyond the book here a little bit. So it could be a TED Talk if you're into those things, a movie, a television show, uh, whatever it might be that best uh, meets the purpose of this category in your minds. Give us a, a brief marketing promo of it here, and then we're going to you know, engage in a little dialogue. And then at the end of the show, hopefully readers are ready to uh, pack the uh, bag for the beach. All right. So category one, book you most wish Trump
2: would read. That everyone else should probably read, too. Jim, what's it going to be? So I'm focused here on what Trump should read. uh, And I'm actually going to give you a book that I don't even know if you can get it anymore. Uh, I read it as a kid, and I'm from Baltimore. So I'm going with the late Orioles manager Earl Weaver's book, Winning. Uh, I mean, Earl actually knew how to win. He did it regularly. Uh, He prepared. He used data. He avoided doing things that would give outs to the other team. Uh, Earl's big motto was pitching defense in the three run homer. And while I know Trump likes to swing for the fences, um, you know, he doesn't always knock it out of the park. And I think actually he's often trying to, of course, change the game. So um, it's I haven't read this book since I was in middle school. And uh, I, like I said, I don't even know if you could get it, but I really wish a guy who talks about winning so much would read uh, Earl's. Book on winning. Yeah, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great choice. Um, I was thinking perhaps more of a book that could um, tell somebody how to manage their ego, but um, that might be a, a book for another time. But I think the book uh, that I hope that he one day reads is Steve Call's Director at S, um, the CIA in America's secret wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. I mean, it's it's long, but I think it's excellent, especially considering that Afghanistan is the longest war the U.S. has been involved in. And um, Trump, especially when he was on the campaign trail, said that he was going to end the war. So I think perhaps before he starts creating strategies of how to end the war, which doesn't seem like he is, it might be good to read upon the history. And it's just so complex, which is such a cliche. But um, I think it's just he called us a really good job of capturing just the nuances that exist in the conflict.
0: Yeah, yeah, another good one. I mean, you know, Trump's kind of famous for not having a lot of command of of the various and sundry policy topics he uh, talks about, has to deal with. And so at least one book on Afghanistan before he makes more Afghanistan policy sounds like a good plan to me. Uh, Yeah, I think I was a little bit more on Jim's uh, wavelength here. I picked... A fairly old book too, um, called "Getting to Yes: uh, Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In" by Roger Fisher and William Urey. Um, I read this book in grad school, when my wife actually went to the Kennedy School where they taught. and And um, uh, and I read this book in like I don't know, nineteen eighty nine or something like that. And and immediately was blown away by how wrongly I had approached negotiation in the past. And uh, the idea of separating. Um, negotiating from interests instead of positions was a a mind blower to me and it seems so perfect for Trump because the uh, Iran deal, the North Korean summit and so on, uh, so much uh, time and energy is invested into these situations and yet Trump uh, so far to me just seems to have no clue about what he's doing and boy just this one thin book could probably help him a lot. It's not the art of the deal, but it's it's about getting to yes. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Well, those are those are some books I think Trump should read. Okay, um, second category, uh, best book for understanding where the world is headed. And I purposely left this vague, but I don't know. Let's
2: see what we got. Jim? So it is vague, uh, and I hate to go back to the 70s again as I did with the first question, but uh, I'm going with Bob Jervis's perception and misperception in international politics. Um, you know, Jervis... Tells you why leaders make very common uh, cognitive errors, uh, repeat patterns over and over again. Uh, I think that for uh, really thinking about where we are, where we're headed, uh, the kind of mistakes that it's easy for leaders to make, uh, it's a good it's a good choice. And while you know taking a grad school book to the beach maybe not be the the best thing in the world, uh, I don't think you can go wrong with Bob's book. Oh boy, that's so true.
1: Yeah, I I mean, that's one of my favorite books. And I would say even probably one of the books that got me interested in IR. But I think for um, a book for understanding the world today, I like Deborah Avance, The Market for Force, The Consequences for Privatizing Security. She wrote it in 2005. And I think despite... um, Cato's efforts here to ensure that uh, governments don't start unnecessary wars, I think that U.S. administrations are going to. And they're not necessarily going to use U.S. troops. They're going to use private security and military companies. And so I think her book is probably one of the best books out there talking about how states use the private sector and how it influences the use of force.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I don't see that trend stopping anytime soon, the sort of increase in private military forces uh, being used by governments and others, you know, or even just sort of starting off on their own and creating chaos in uh, ungoverned spaces and, and so on. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Jervis, uh, Jim, because I just assigned that book for a course on foundations and security studies this past semester, and um, and <clears throat> I have to say that I still love this book, but boy, is that a long book for the beach. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a it's a very, maybe the article. Maybe we could suggest at least they take the article version to the beach. Um, <clears throat> but. But that's a timeless, I, I think, classic that you can never um, stop learning from. Uh, I went I, – well, I had trouble on this one because having purposely made the category vague, I kept wondering which sort of part of that question is the one that's most pressing to me. Um, I thought about – Uh, sort of the rise of populism stuff and I thought about, um, you know, How Democracies Die, it's a great book about sort of backsliding in democracies which seems relevant to today. Um, I thought about climate change, I thought about, you know, all sorts of things and then I eventually came back to uh, killer robots, which is where my brain is most of the time, and so I'm going to suggest to people uh, a book by uh, Oxford professor Nick Bostrom, Superintelligence. Um, it's it's a deep read on uh, artificial intelligence and what happens, what might happen when uh, you know we finally invent computers that are just flat out smarter than we are, and and what we need to do if if we are capable of doing that. Uh, What do we need to do now to make sure they don't put an end to us? And this goes well beyond international affairs, of course. But, um, you know, as we see an increasing... you know, reliance on advanced technologies in warfare, but just also in sort of homeland security surveillance, um, the number of things you see computers and artificial intelligence doing these days—robots or not robots, however it comes at you—it's um, just it's sort of staggering. And um, you know, I used to make a joke uh, when I was younger that um, the engineers working in corporate America. Uh, are really just trying to make the world look as much like Star Trek as they can. If you want to understand the arc of technology in the United States, this is just how you need to understand. They're trying to make a tricorder to see if you're sick or not. They're trying to make a phaser to stun people. They're trying to make a teleport. We have all those things more or less now. So I, I you might actually, my fiction choice for
2: this category would probably be Star Trek, but my nonfiction choice is superintelligence. You know, I I mean, I, I've been feeling a lot lately like the smarter I try to get about these issues, the Dumber I feel because it's just so overwhelming to try to try to really take on board. But I, I agree. I mean, this this is where we're headed and we really need to uh, really f- understand these things. All of us need to understand these things better. Yeah, you're right. And
0: but you're absolutely right. It's a slippery topic. I, I every time you think you get something, you, it's so hard to figure out the implications of any advancement in artificial intelligence or or some other. I mean, and you know, the the funny thing about it is that. And you know, this is one of those uh, age things, I guess, you know, Jim and I are getting to a certain age where um, all new technologies seem essentially like magic, and I don't understand them, and I certainly can't predict how young people are going to use them to change the world. And that's, you know, you look at Facebook, you look at you know WhatsApp, you look at Snapchat, you look at every new cool virtual reality technology. These are all created by like 20-year-olds or younger, and I certainly have no idea what they're up to. I can't tell you what my kids are up to, so I certainly are not going to be able to predict the future of technology For sure. So, all right. Okay. Category three. Uh, Let's imagine your beach vacation goes on a little longer than you thought. So, you're now stuck on a desert island and you packed only a single book on international affairs to keep you company. Which one is it going to be?
2: so I'm going to cheat a little bit because it's not exactly an international affairs book, uh, and it is a novel. But it's a book that it's actually the book I've assigned more than any other book over the course of my career, and it's I assign it especially to undergraduates because I feel like it really gives you deep insights into the human condition, and that's Arthur Kessler's novel *Darkness at Noon*, uh, which is based on the uh, Stalin. Purgis tells the story of Rubashov who gets caught up in the maelstrom and, you know, this sort of idealistic party leader who gets ground down slowly but surely by uh, the oppressive state machine that's developing. And, you know, when you're on a desert island, I don't know if you want a book that makes you feel despair. Um, It's not going to be like Gilligan uh, if you're, you know, if you're stuck with – with Darkness at Noon, but maybe you'll start to identify with the main character. So uh, it could be very symbiotic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I was thinking, you know, if I'm stuck on a desert island, I'll have a lot of time to think about states and how they create national interests, provided um, I would still be interested in that. Or um, perhaps I'll be more interested in thinking about when the Ship can come and save me from this desert island. But um, I was thinking along the lines of um, Hans Morgenthau's um, Politics Among Nations, The Struggle for Power and Peace. It's a classic realism book. um, And I think it's still extremely relevant today. And it provides a foundation for sort of IR literature, international affairs discussions. Um, And I think on a desert island, I'll be thinking a lot about why states do what they do and how they create their interests.
0: Because that's what people like us do. They find themselves stranded on a desert island, and instead of looking for ways to get off, we start pondering the deep. Hey, finally, I have time to really <clears throat> think about uh, what Morgenthau was saying. And I, I laugh only because I'm about one book away on the shelf from you, Sahara. I chose Ken Malt's Man the State and <laughs> War. Uh, because similarly uh, to Morgenthau, I, you know, books written back then uh, and by back then I mean, you know, before, let's say, the 70s when social sciences took the scientific sort of turn and we all had to sound like um, scientists when we wrote, um, you know, Waltz's book um, is, is literary. It is, you, you, I, I mean, the number of names of other great philosophers and historians and scholars he drops, you know effectively is staggering and every time I read this book and again it's a I do assign it for my foundations course and so I've had to go back at this book many times and I guess that's how I know I won't get too tired of it because every time I read it I find a passage where I'm like wow that's deep and I hadn't really ever thought of that before um but uh uh, that's I think that's funny so that yeah
2: you know. uh, my other one I was thinking about that one too but yeah Ken what a great writer and you know I so I went to grad school at Berkeley when he and Ernie Haas were on the faculty and uh the saying in in the grad school cohort was always read Waltz, take Haas. because Ken was such a great writer and Ernie was such a great teacher and I'll just leave it at that all right uh category four four, slightly different direction, your
0: best book uh, suggestion on a topic that doesn't get enough attention—it
2: came down to two for me, and one Sahar has already mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. which was Debbie Avant's book on <laughs> private security forces, which I just you know really something that people really need to take on board. Uh, so the other one uh, is um, uh, actually also by a former GW colleague of mine, Elizabeth Saunders' uh, book, "Leaders at War," because. Mainly because, uh, especially coming off the heels of uh, Trevor's uh, discussion of Ken Waltz, you know, so much of the field of international affairs has been focused on st- the role of structure and the way states act within the international system, and uh, you know, we are now starting to pay more attention to leaders. Uh, but uh, I think you know Elizabeth was uh, was really there uh, early on, really looking at uh, how you have to understand the beliefs that leaders. Uh, Develop before they come into office, sort of what they what they learn as they uh, go forward through their careers, and how uh, their ideas about about the different uh, aspects of of the world uh, really shape their thinking, and and that's what they come into office with. And and, and she does a a great book on uh, on Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson, and uh, I think. You know if you really want to understand how leaders think and why they matter, uh, Leaders at War is a, is a fantastic read.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, the book I have in mind is um, that definitely does not get enough attention, it should. It's by Brent Steele and it's called Ontological Security and International Relations Self Identity and the IR State. Um, and this is also a little self serving on my part because I wrote my dissertation on ontological security, but you know, it was a concept that really changed the way I thought about how states function, and I think one of the strengths of his book is to show that you know states just don't engage in certain actions because of institutional constraints or because of certain agency. It's how they want the world to perceive them and how they perceive the world. And this was something which on an individual level we think about, but we don't really think about, especially with an IR um, at, the, at the state level. Um, and so for me, it was a really interesting idea of how we can... Um, disaggregate the state when we think about social actions Um, and also for just his His research on why states engage in certain humanitarian actions, I thought it was just fascinating. So especially now being here at Cato, the larger question of should we intervene? Should we not intervene? And what does that intervention look like is essentially what we talk about all day long in our department. And so I think his book is is really good. And just from a scholarly point of view, it's nice to have a concept to talk about it. So you'll have states that engage in activities that harm their physical security, but not necessarily their identity. So for me, that's sponsoring militant groups is one action that states do, and it's very common and it's universal. So just a little plug for ontological security scholars out there who listen to this podcast.
0: Yeah, that's great. I. <clears throat> Both of your choices are interesting because they reflect, in my mind, sort of the uh, the response to the dominance of realism as a security IR paradigm. Um, at a certain point, there you know the backlash came, and and. Uh, yeah, you know, constructivism picked up steam, and and sort of various offshoots of of uh, research uh, like focusing on individual leaders that had been poo pooed for quite some time, but used to be big, but had been kind of stuffed by um, the modern uh, political science approach to uh, security. Uh, the, a lot of these things are back with us now, which is really fascinating. Uh, I I for me, I also went a little bit self interested here, um, and. Uh, have identified a, a book uh, about the arms trade, which is one of my recent hobby horses. Um, it's called "Indefensible: Seven Myths That Sustain the Global Arms Trade," uh, edited by Paul Holden. And it's, I mean, as it sort of suggests, it's organized around uh, seven sorts of myths uh, along the lines of um, arm sales are good for the national economy uh, and things like that, or you know, arm sales are uh, a great way to get leverage over other countries. These sorts of things that um, most policymakers uh, still believe without too much uh, questioning, but uh, in fact, when you poke on them a little bit, are pretty flimsy uh, assumptions, and, um, and in fact, when you compare uh, combine those assumptions uh, with uh, the actual outcomes, um, you might need to rethink uh, the role of uh, arms sales in US foreign policy, and so I've been doing a lot of work on that lately, uh, and I can say from having tried to get attention on this issue, but boy, does it not get much attention. Um, occasionally when Saudi Arabia wants to buy 100 billion of something, it gets some attention, but other than that, no, not so much. Okay, now category five last category this is a fun one your favorite and i'm going to ask for a reasonably recent foreign affairs flavored fiction movie or television show
2: jim what do you got so I hate to go back to the Stalin purchase for the second time on this uh, podcast, but I read *Gentlemen in Moscow recently. Oh, my gosh. It was so well written and uh, just enthralled. It really, you know, really brought out the history of the period. And, uh, you know, this member of the nobility goes under house arrest in a hotel from the revolu- revolution through the Stalin period and just some uh, incredible uh Incredible characters, and yes, the second book I've mentioned on that period, and it may reflect the mood I'm in, but I, r- I really enjoyed *A Gentleman in Moscow*. You're clearly trapped in a certain era. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay; it happens to all of us. But
1: that's great. I'm—I've um, started uh, watching *The Americans*, and I know they just had their season finale, so I am a little behind. No spoilers, but I'm on season two, and I think it's awesome. I, I especially like the fact that it's filmed in DC, though how in tv shows especially even in house of cards how you can get from one point in dc to another point in a matter of five minutes is definitely a work of fiction but that said the americans is a great tv show so i like watching it
0: i, I love that too I- although I say that having watched I think three or four episodes only because it got so tense so early on that my wife and I like we can't watch this on a work night it's too tense we're gonna have to wait and binge the whole thing like on a long summer break somewhere where we don't have to worry about our blood pressure Um, because that's that was a tense one Um, although my other my suggestion is uh, is somewhat tense um, uh, and that is a Netflix original television series uh, filmed in Norway called Occupied which imagines a alternate future near future where uh, Norway the, the world is in kind of a, a, a crisis because the OPEC countries are no longer, because of political instability, delivering oil to the rest of the world. And Norway, one of the few oil producers left who has any oil, has decided for climate change reasons to stop exporting oil. And you can imagine that the rest of the world doesn't take that very well. So the European Union uh, gets together with Russia and has Russia invade Norway and occupy it. And this is the story of the sort of burgeoning resistance to the Russian occupation of Norway and there's just been a couple of seasons. Um, it is, I mean, I, I'm a sucker for all the Scandinavian fiction and, and TV shows I've watched. Literally you cannot name a Scandinavian television show I have not watched. Um, but this is a really good one and it is for IR fans. I, I would show this to undergrads and say, hey, take a look and then read the stuff I actually assigned and see if you can smell, you know, the theories that we're talking about here because it really is a really nice way to learn some of these, you know, a happier way to learn about these theories.
2: I've heard great things about it, so. No, yeah,
0: it's worth it. it's worth a few hours of your life to binge. If you can watch in the sun, you have to have an umbrella to be able to watch, <laughs> uh, you know, a good tablet or something like that, but all right, good. Um, okay, so... Uh, I'm going to slide in a question that's not on your sheets, guys, so be ready. Um, before I ask you what you're actually going to read on the beach, I-, I wanted to get some. What are you reading these days generally? Like, what's what's actually on your desk, like, right
2: now? Jim, what, what's what you're reading? So, yesterday, I started Ben Rhodes' new book uh, on his years with Obama. And I have to say... Um, I'm not sure how long I'm gonna last with it, but I'm 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 giving it In a words. try. Yeah, uh-huh.
1: so I'm reading um, Stephen Pinker's book. I think it's called The Art of Rhetoric, um, but it's basically about writing and effective writing. So this is my attempt at getting better at op eds. I'm still new at this, um, and I've been trying to convert my dissertation into a book manuscript, which ends up which is basically meaning that you write another dissertation in a way (laughs) so i've been trying to um explore ways of how to improve your writing so it's very boring and the reason why i've take it's taken me so long to read it it's because i'll read five pages and fall asleep however i'm midway through and i feel as if my writing is improving so we'll see how long that i can keep that up
0: that's awesome very good um, yeah, I have a mishmash of stuff on my desk right now because I'm um, working with some colleagues on a, a book about the Trump uh, foreign policy uh, doctrine and stuff. So I've got uh, uh, I've got Hal Brand's book on grand strategy in the era of Trump, and uh, i got my colleague Colin Dueck's book on the Obama doctrine on my desk and been leafing through these for good uh, uh, advice and counsel about how to format such a book and so on, uh, but also still working on... Um, uh, public opinion change over the generations and so I have um, some work uh, from the folks who do the World value survey uh, and uh, also a edited volume by Jack Goldstone, one of my Mason colleagues on demog- demography political demography uh, and uh, political change so yeah a you know, little bit of a summer reading list there all right now. <clears throat> Of course, when we give you these ideas, uh, listeners, um, you know, we're posing because no one takes these books to the beach. Uh, this is what you should read, not what you're going to read. And so our, our final bonus round of questioning here is is to interrogate our um, podcast committee as to what they're actually going to be taking to the beach. Um, no lying allowed. Jim, what are you actually going to read this summer?
2: So first of all, I'm going to the mountains, uh, not the beach. Not the beach. <laughs> not, I don't all know right. if that makes a difference, right. but just want to get that out there now. Um, I do have to review uh, Justin Weiss's biography of Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, and I got a reminder yesterday from H. Diplo that uh, my review is due, so I I do need to do that. But the one that I've got on my desk that I'm going to take with me, really looking forward to reading, is Corey Shockey's Safe Passage. And, um, you know, I am revealing myself to be a total IR nerd when I say that that's what I'm going to take on vacation, but really looking forward to reading Corey's book.
1: So I'm going to reveal something about myself, which very few people know. Um, but I'm a big comic book nerd. And so for me, um, I really love taking graphic novels, which is are basically just sort of political comic books. And um, they're super easy to read. They don't require a lot of attention. And I think they get the message across. And so one of my favorite books that I always like taking is Joe Sacco's Palestine. And it's just beautifully written, it's beautifully drawn, and it really shows emotions in a way that, you know, you can describe it, but it's, it's different when you actually see a drawing of it. So um, for all those graphic novels lover out, lovers out there, um, I think it's perfectly acceptable for you to like graphic novels and to take them on the beach and read them publicly.
0: Absolutely. Here, here. I I love it. Um, Okay, I'm going to go in, I guess, a slightly different direction. Um, So I will be at the beach at some point, finally, this summer. Um, And I will be reading um, one of at least a couple different things. Um, There's a uh, series of uh, mystery novels by... um, North Carolina writer named Margaret uh, Maron. Uh, she has a series about a judge named Deborah Knott uh, and who has a very large family and extended family uh, <clears throat> about an hour or so outside of Charlotte. And it is a fantastic series of, of novels that really give you a really wonderful feeling for Southern living and kind of the craziness of the South in general. Uh, So that's one I've been enjoying. My wife and I are sort of on the book five, and I think there's maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 of these books or something like that. Definitely going to have some of those. And then uh, if you are a fan of the um, HBO TV series True Blood, um, the woman who wrote the novels, um, uh, Charlene Harris. Has, is a prolific writer and has a couple of other uh, series that I'm enjoying uh, picking at uh, bit by bit, um, you know, other silly detective types of stuff. Sometimes zombies and vampires, sometimes not. But uh, anyway, that's, that's where I'm going to be with those. Um, that'll do it for today. Uh, thanks to Jim for joining us and thanks as usual to our producer, Jeff Gell. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Find us on Twitter with at CatoFP to continue the conversation and check out Power Problems on the Cato website for links to all the books we discussed today.